Hello, and welcome to the TOA podcast, where we invite readers to eavesdrop and interlope on conversations among the Offending Adams editors and the authors we publish. I'm your host, Avni Vyas, and today we'll hear from V. Key Now, the author of the chapbook Every Dress is a Simile, and from Andrew Wessels, V's editor for this project. We'll begin with V reading an excerpt from Every Dress is a Simile. The woman I love, the woman I love has endless compassion for me, yet in the middle of the night, I left her and life for death. There was infinite discord in my soul, infinite conjunction of pain, and blissfully I hung my neck from a modern day cypress. And the young emboldened leaves, not mulch in their fortuitous youth, scream into tumultuous calamity from their verdant height, had confused me for a dying leaf, had waited so patiently for me not to exfoliate from a branch in life. When my neck broke into two in response to the weight of gravity against my neck, they thought an inter- inner twig inside them had separated a blade of photosynthesis from an artery of time. Where I hung, the air was endless and youthful, and the wind wore a cape made of northern cipher while flying high and low around my hair and teeth and feet, making my cheeks flutter, turning my blouse into a river of silk and thread. A day later, when I defoliated with the help of a tall ladder, soft and firm hands, my lifeless body once again returned to earth to dream of soil, made to decompose a life that has spent most of its days in grief and disbelief. I suppose time could take a long walk with me by the river of death. I suppose it is never too late to hold life's hand briefly while the sun comes down from that mountain before letting her go into a city designed for ruins. I am so capable of loving life back. I am so capable, yet I think why love when I could succumb easily to dirt, which has all the nutrients to sustain a new life, a different kind of existence, not composed entirely of fractured hopelessness and summer rain made from the thaw-out heartbeats of winter. Every dress is a simile. Every breath is a metaphor. Every smile is a symbol. Every finger is a personification. Every gaze is hyperbole. Every hunt is an alliteration. Every exaggeration is an anatopia. Every despair is an idiom. Every speaker is an imagery. Please, please, I am addicted to your freezer. Please, let me be addicted to your freezer. Please. I am your coral reef. Please, I am a lake. That is how I quiet you down. The roof of your mouth is my own crown. 
Little by little, I leak a lake. You are resistant as a coral reef from the mountain. I am your pussy from your chainmail. I'm still your pussy. Thank you for listening. Thank you, V. Now let's listen in as TOA editor Andrew Wessels talks with V Key now about her work. The um, so gosh, I have to I have to think about where where exactly I want to start here. So one thing, so I was rereading the collection this morning. Um, I think for the first for the first time in full since we accepted it. Um, I guess uh, probably about two, maybe three months ago. And when when I first read the collection, I was really interested in how in your use of simile and metaphor, which begins obviously with the title of the collection. But I was doubly interested. Um, because of uh, a few weeks ago, the kind of social hubbub over Ocean Vuong's uh, little Instagram mini class on simile. And so that just kind of made me focus in even more on simile and metaphor. So I don't necessarily want to get into all the social like network commotion over that, but I was just really interested in getting started um, and just kind of wanting to hear you talk a little bit more about how you see the use of simile and metaphor in the construction and production of your poems? Um, I think like um, for me, like similes and metaphors are, um, they're more like organic intuitive organs of language. And usually when I use them, it's it's almost as if um, those figurative um, devices um, lends its own ontological um, uh, diversions. So it will. It's like um, it reminds me of a tree. Um, once it seeds, it's planted in the 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 soil of uh, of of language of that particular um, body of text then it wants to try to um, germinate, bloom, and become a tree in which it bifurcates. Um, and so um, if, if I use a particular metaphor or a simile, then I see it almost as um, at a, a type of defolation, you know, where it falls off the tree and becomes something living but dead you know um as it um settled down onto the body of the soil of a particular text um i know uh uh these uh figurative devices i use them fairly interchangeably and fairly frequently and and i think um Oftentimes they think, you know, like one step to carve some into being like a sculpture. But the way cinemally and metaphor works for me is that they sort of follow an associative track. So if, if, if an image is born from my imagination and I am giving birth to it on the page by writing it down, um, the relationship between before arriving and its arrival 
that time that 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 inter that liminal space is where um, uh, uh, the conversion of something uh, dormant and still becomes has vibrancy and uh, sonic reverberation. And oftentimes, um, uh, some of my metaphors and similes are born from sound. So the relationship to sound lends itself. Like um, it reminds me, like if back in the days when we had to send telegrams, you know, and now we don't do that anymore. We use um, uh, iPhone and um, you know other device to make that. Um, sonic that lit- from something literary to a sonic conversions, and um, when that takes place on the page for me, um, and that's when you can see the technology of um, uh, the technology of poetry um, developing itself quietly um, from 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 something very ancient to a contemporary. Also, like I think my metaphors are not. Um, uh, two-dimensional I think it grows as it's born metaphors like um, especially simile when you just say like a tree is like a body um, when one makes such a leap an abstract leap from from converting something that one normally wouldn't convert like maybe uh, water into oil or um, uh, blood into wine um, a miracle takes place, you know, on the page. You expect something uh, to transform from that um, relationship. And I think, you know, like all writers attempt, I mean, especially poets, attempt to um, make something very simple and quiet, miraculous on the page as fast as possible. And similarly in metaphor, is the fastest, um, one of the fastest um, um, uh, transportation device, like, you know, like a bullet train um, that gets you from the thinker, the writer to the reader. Um, it's a type of music, you know, it's transcendent and it should speak volumes of its, um, you know, and oftentimes, sometimes an image breaks down like any, any, transportation system it will have like cults and sometimes it doesn't work sometimes you you make that bullet train work as 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 fast and as efficiently as possible um but um all things that requires on technology breaks down human breaks down even organic matter breaks down so it's not just technology alone um we are fallible and so i always think like i'm transporting uh, containers, cargoes of emotions and feelings and contents and my history with language and I'm 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 trying to transfer that and transport that as quickly to the reader as possible. Uh, what is the best way to do so? And simile and metaphors are those type of um, fast transportations that you would expect in contemporary modern culture. That's really interesting. In my my notes, I had I written down roughly uh, similes are equal to rocket ships, um, and that that's kind of the 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 way that I kind of felt reading the the similes and 
and metaphors yeah they, they were rocket ships just kind of like at just insane speeds moving me to a new space um in the poem one thing that that was was interesting in your um in your response was the some of the words that kind of jumped out were kind of miracle conversion um a lot of words that i think we would generally uh associate with kind of religion and faith and uh something that was kind of i don't want to use the word taught to me but an idea that it, that a long time ago was uh offered to me about kind of what makes a poem or a poet work or not work is that uh, the reader has faith and believes in the poem, uh, has faith in the poet and believes in the poet. And um, so just, I think in part, because I was kind of hearing some of that language and you talked about how sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. What kind of, uh, trying to think about the best way to put this, this is not one of my prepared questions um, coming up, but uh, how do you see that kind of, uh, that role, I guess, of the of yourself as the author in your relationship um, with the reader, and especially thinking through that a lot of these poems are about like love, connection, desire, or at least the expression of those things, and and how that potentially is also kind of like an act of faith to um, to express those things. Um, well, when a lot of those these poems that are a lot of my poems that end up being published or a lot of my work, in fact, all of my poetry collections, um, except for um, the ones that I did early uh, pre-COVID or like a, a mid-COVID, <laughs> like April, May, June, uh, July, um, those poems, um, I did a lot of research and I work like it took like three or four hours to write a poem. Um, I've learned those poems are terrible after I read them. It's terrible. They're horrible. Um, I read them and I just cringe because I just wanted to edit out everything. Um, the poems that, um, that I don't spend that much time on, they oftentimes arrive within like five minutes. Those are the poems that for some reason I feel most at home. Later I can read it and be okay with it. And these are the poems that um, appear here are the ones that only took me five minutes to write. They just like arrive and I just sit down, compose it and I ignore them. And then when I need to put together a collection then I'm like, okay, I'll pull these. And when I make them my decision, they're all so fast. Uh, whenever I overthink and I think overthinking is anti-fate. Um, I think um, the more one thinks it feeds uh, perversions of doubt it feeds, um, uh, doesn't give one's room to see chance as important uh, and an important uh, contributor of volition. That there are hierarchies of consciousness that operates invisibly, and to trust that invisibility. Um, once when one overthink and have more control of the poem, I think that um, one loses that that potent energy that allows one to um, work with the universe in order to land something on the page. And so when one fights um, over things, one fights with volition and one fights with one's opportunity to exist um, with the universe. So 
um, my three hour research on some of the poems that I wrote because I had so much time. I was like, might as well, you know, I've never spent as much time on a poem. I have all the time in the world. Why not put three hours a day on writing a poem? And I did a lot of research and I did, you know, every word, every line, I was just like, I have to be completely composed. And a month later, as I was pulling together a collection for another collection, I'm like, oh, these are horrible. I can't use any of these. <laughs> um, so as you can see, um, I think there is a time for thoughtful meditation, and which I think is very different than overthinking. I think meditation is like allowing oneself to just breathe with the potentiality of creating. And that removes the element of control. One is just letting things like the river passing through the consciousness of, a, of one's um, being. Um, the other one is like, is like holding up like a bunch of strings to an idea and trying to marinate marinate it in a way and then suddenly they're not talking to each other and the string got twisted and everything gets convoluted and you don't know which string is for which and it, it just becomes a disaster. Um, that's I don't think that is wise, but you know, it's important to have that experience to know not to do it. Um, <laughs> um, but you know, experience can be overrated. So uh, I guess maybe three years ago, almost to the day, a little over three years ago, or not to the day, a little over three years ago, I believe you interviewed me when my book was coming out. And one of the questions that really stuck with me um, is that you asked me what I'd eaten for dinner the night before. Um, I was in Istanbul, like 10 hours ahead. You were here. So I had just woken up um, and I think it was evening for you. Um, so I, just to get us started on this uh, path, uh, what did you eat most recently? Um, before our interview, I had um, I had mussels with rice, pear, and fried tilapia. That sounds really good. <laughs> um, I've been iron deprived, so I've been trying to increase my intake on clams and mussels and oysters because they have like fifty uh, percent iron, especially especially oysters. Um, they're high in iron, and I've been taking iron pills to like um, diminish my amnesia—not um, amnesia, um, anemia. Uh, so I've been just struggling a lot to because the medicine I take it doesn't if I don't take I don't eat iron the real kind like in beef like you can see but beef is really hard for me and I'm I am not a vegetarian but I tend to prefer food that are vegetables and rice and tofu and those are not very high in iron content I just I just it's not out my, I just don't go out of my way just to get beef, but I have to start eating beef and it, I'm not really a fan of eating beef. Um, um, so I'm trying to find other like substitutes uh, so that I can get the iron in my body. And if I take the medicine, it will be able to absorb that iron. And so uh, even if I just take medicine, it's just, if I don't have iron content in my body, it won't be able to absorb the iron medicine that I take. So um, that explained why I'm eating, I'm eating muscles. 
um, uh, and it's sandy, you know. It has like not a lot of mussels. They sell it at the grocery store. They don't really wash it clearly, so I'm eating it, and I'm like worrying that it's gonna crack one of my teeth. So, um, but um, if I had a choice, I would just eat tofu, cabbage, and longans or jackfruit um, every meal. It just um, it's you don't have to deal with animal and blood and and then I can fall offer it to um, a lot of my friends who are uh, kosher, you know, who are um, Muslims. Uh, they don't eat pork, so it just it just it's just universally acceptable for a lot of cultures, and it's it's very vegetarian and vegan friendly. So it just. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, the the first couple of questions I asked got us on a track of kind of like going deeper into figurative language, and then we went off into kind of the faithfulness of poems. And um, I wanted to kind of use that question to bring us back to kind of the real. And so many of your poems have food and eating and drinking and consumption in them. And so I was just curious, kind of how, like. I mean, I have an idea of kind of how I read them, that they're very ground, they, they kind of ground me back in the real and they ground me back into the body and these things. But so that's kind of at least what I kind of how I interact with them. But I just a little bit more generally to let you, if that's not how you consider those things, um, just kind of how is like what you've consumed or the speaker of the poet his poem has consumed um, become part of these poems and kind of how does that function in your work? I mean, um, you are um, astute to notice that um, a lot of my work is very food friendly, um, food infused. And in Vietnamese culture, um, where I grew up, um, especially for the first decade of my life um, in Vietnam, I, um, food is a symbol of love in my culture. So whenever we offer someone food, it's like we basically saying, oh, I love you, you know? It's just when we say, you know, have you eaten? Have you slept? Um, here's a bed and here's some food. That's like the primary language of hospitality in Vietnamese culture. And I like to lend that same hospitality on the page. So when I offer food to my reader, when I'm saying, you know, there's a grapefruit, there are some papayas here, um, there's some, there's a pressure cooker <laughs> in my work. Um, it's, these are all language of saying to the reader that uh, I love that you're sitting here with me to consume um, this food that I've prepared for you. Um, it's, the, it's not entirely biological food like you would see like um, as in an apple but it has like literary um, nutrition nutrients that will feed them hopefully in a way and make you know them like feel like if they ate like a chapbook in one afternoon that they feel like they've eaten a really good meal and that it will um, not make them feel famished for the next you know three or four hours of their life. Um, so it's uh, if, if, if I include a lot of food in my writing, it's an extension of um, hospitality. Um, and, um, and also in conversation with the fact that I, by 
offering a plate, a, a literary plate of food. I'm also saying, hey, you know, like be with me and this moment, you know, share this intimate moment with me and share the same air space with me. Um, um, and, um, and it's just that, you know, um, there's nothing like compelling. I don't want them to like walk away feeling like after this, they need to be the next Superman, you know, the next uh, Wonder Woman. Uh, they're not here to like conquer the world, to save it, not to demolish the next city. It's it's not it's not designed for my my poetry isn't designed for demolition. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just designed for love and acceptance and a, a share moment, a sacred moment of love for language, you know. And food is the it's a really good container for that, you know. It's everyone needs to eat. Um, why not use a language everyone can relate to? And, and I think you're, uh, so I think probably this will be my last question to keep us on, on time, um, which is very hard for me. I wrote way too many questions. Um, <laughs> but in, in your first answer, you mentioned kind of the, the, like the sonic quality, uh, when you are at least kind of composing similes and metaphors and, uh, that kind of made me recall um, the first time I got to hear you read, which was a few years ago in downtown LA. I believe it was Diana Arterian's book launch, uh, if I recall correctly. And I think you read um, a selection from Fish in Exile. And um, the, I mean, I've, I've had this experience with a number of other poets, but just kind of hearing you read the work just added this kind of different um, element to it in this this kind of new element that not better, not worse, just kind of another kind of aspect, another way of accessing and interacting with the work. And especially since you mentioned you're thinking so much about the sonic qualities, how do you see um, or how do you kind of think about uh, the performance of the work, the sound of the work? Oh, yeah, I remember that reading. Um, in LA with um, Diana Tyrion. I, I just remember because I remember there was an audience member um, in the um, who was a miniature human, just like a, a little baby, like <laughs> like your your son. Um, and so I was I was reading really sexual content, sexy content, and I was asking the mother or the parents permission if. You know, oh, and he said, oh, they're fine, you know, <laughs> it was just like, uh, you know, um, it's just like, it was a lot of sapphic material. And so I was just like, I'm not sure if her son is ready for, for sapphic content so early in life, you know, um, could be dangerous. Um, um, he might become the next Sappho, you know, as a result of my reading. But um, um, I, I, a reading in public sometimes is it's hard because I I remember in that space in LA for I had to gauge with that space and you know like I would have like a collection of like ten poems some sort of like preset in my head and I would rotate it based on like how how the audience we see like uh, their response to the previous readers. Um, I kind of like pay attention to how readers are in that space and sort of like design my reading for them. So it's very specific. Like I chose all of those. Um, 
the one that I read in LA very specifically for that particular atmosphere and that particular audience and that particular book and the way like sound echoes in that room like if if if, uh, if I if I can if I can read a long piece or I can just need to shorten it or just read all short pieces or to have like a variety of between humor and and sadness um, between um, abstraction to see you know like oh if the reader is able to like be receptive to this maybe I can amplify the experience um, and I use sonic um, um, intuitions um, and also like my memory of all the experiences of reading and the audience in there and and that shapes the texture um, and the sonic texture of my reading um, in LA um, um, it's all very, um, very catered, very uh, personalized catering to that particular um, group of um, readers and, um, and, and, and audience. Um, so most people walk in and they will just read the same thing to everyone, regardless of their station um, and their reading bookstore, um, venue, different venues. They will all read the same. And I don't. I I choose all of my reading very, um, and because I have so many books out in the world, and I have so a variety of them that I can tap into any of them. So I just like, oh, I'll tap into this book if this it's if this is for a particular audience. Um, and sometimes you know, like once in a while, it just doesn't click. You know, it's just a bad reading. You know, no matter how much you put thoughts into it, how much you just try to cater, how much you you work for the work for for you the word on the page to like leap sonically onto the audience. It just won't work, and it just you, some days you just have bad days. And just to accept that, you know, and not to conflict that as oh, oh, my intuition has failed me in the previous ninety nine times that I've read that reading. So now I can't use that anymore. Um, I've just realized that this moment, if this just doesn't work, and just just ignore it. Um, I hope that answered your questions, Andrew. Um, yeah, those are all wonderful answers, all of them. Um, and thank you, V. That yeah, I could just keep asking questions, but probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> we'll never move on. Okay, thank you for your very yeah. thoughtful questions, and yeah. I appreciate the time that you both put into um, creating this broadcast. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, thank you for being our kind of uh, guinea pig, so to speak, yeah. <laughs> our, yeah. our first attempt at this. We've done some practice podcasting, but the first real one. I don't mind being a mannequin for uh, on the window display, and you can put different dresses, a dress of simile or metaphor onto me. Thanks, V, for a great conversation. We'll take a short break, and then I'll speak with Andrew about why he chose Every Dress as a Simile for publication at TOA. So Avni, what comes next? I have like just kind of general questions about uh, the reading and editing process for you. Um, but I was also taking copious notes while uh, V was reading. And I there are so many just beautiful turns of phrases as you were explaining your uh, poems. It's going to be very difficult for me to not, I hope to maybe thread those back through. But um, I just had sort of three very sort of general kind of open-ended questions. Um, that Andrew were more for your reading and editing process. Would that work for you? And then V, if you want to listen in, um, that would be wonderful. 
Uh, okay, so Andrew, <laughs> uh, talk to me about V's work and your relationship to V's work. Uh, what draws you? What draws you as a reader? And I know you kind of expressed a lot of that in, in the previous conversation, um, but I'm, I'm wondering how you encounter the text and how uh, other readers might also, through your lens, encounter the text. Um, that's a good question. Um, I really liked how V was talking about. Um, the the kind of difference between the the poems that she didn't see as working, uh, where she would spend hours on the poem in, in corporate research, and then that, that these poems, these poems that work, are so immediate and um, un, unfiltered isn't the right word because there there is a filter, but the, they're not kind of um, overthought overthought filtered to some degree. And um, that's a really compelling thing in part because my writing process is so different. <laughs> it's um, so to get to um, what I feel as that same space of kind of like where I feel faithful to the poem is a very different way. And so I, I think I, I've found myself a lot of times really gravitate towards poets and poems that kind of work in this this other way, this kind of way that I can't do on my own, um, that I'm unable to do. So I just like, so there's just kind of at the very base level, this excitement um, that I get when I come into a space like this um, and a feeling like this. Um, as I mentioned when, uh, when I was chatting with V that by the turns of phrase, like I just feel like I'm constantly on a, a rocket ship going to new places and it's like every turn every line um every new uh like simile every new kind of twist in the poem sends me kind of further and further away in this really wonderful way um so this morning um to kind of this morning it, i did a terrible thing i started reading i opened up apple news before i even got out of bed it was a very bad idea and I then clicked on a, an article that I knew was not going to make me happy. And it's this article in the Atlantic by David Ulin or Ulin. I'm not, I've never been sure how to pronounce his last name. And it's basically just about all the language that he hates. And it's a really terrible article. Um, and I just felt really bad for him because he clearly just doesn't like language. Um, he, just kind of he wants it to be like static unchanging he wants it to be only his like very controlled and controllable and these are all things that like I don't see as being what language is so if you want language to be those things you hate language right um because that's language is the opposite and um so to, to kind of back here it, because I like also woke up thinking like about this uh chat we're going to have today um it made me kind of again see with a new lens of like why i i love these work um that it, it it's true to language it believes in language it loves language um it kind of revels in change itself um in kind of the uncontrollability of language it's wild um but not untamed if that makes sense because as i think we be very thoughtful like very all of these things about language so it's not it is filtered it is thoughtful um but it's also wild and ever-changing 
and um, exploring the kind of multivalences of what language can be, that language can be beautiful and ugly and different and weird and the same and in all of these things at once. Um, and so when I read these poems, I kind of, I feel just like this, the pure energy of what language can do. Um, and David Ulan's terrible article really helped me see that um, even even more um, than uh, than usual. I'm probably being overly mean to the to, to that article, um, is that, but uh, but yeah, it helped me really see um, see kind of in a, or think through what what really um, stands out to me about these works. I think you know to extend that thinking as well. I my um my future mother-in-law who is a very uh former english teacher just an incredibly um feelingful uh linguistic thinker uh got me two books that like made me weep for christmas and one was artful sentences uh and one was 25 great sentences and how they got that way so the so i don't know she understands my like uh love affair with syntax but um there's this really interesting listening to v Ex explore a poem as um, an idea germinating in the soil of language allows for both structure and chaos because I think of like rhizomatic growth and I think about how um, how plant systems and poems also are building and sustaining an ecology right and there's like a, a, a real generosity that that poetics affords language um, that I think plays with that chaos but when I think about syntax and sentences um, I'm the, I wonder whether um, the, the gripey attitude of the Atlantic article might be, uh, in, I don't know, I haven't read the article, but I, I think when people like love sentences, there's uh, a perception that, that that love for sentence is um, somehow prescriptive or um, grammatically bound. Uh, but I think people who really, really love sentences enjoy how, how sentences themselves are like, a I think about like, um, I don't know who said it, but you know, when a line drawing is like a, it's a, a drawing is a line on a walk, right? Like it, it went for a ride and then it arrives as art. Uh, but similar with, with sentences. And I think about this with like crochet and I think about syntax and knitting all the time, um, where like I look at a crochet piece and I realize like, wow, that's one thread that went through this rowdy, chaotic, you know, uh, kinetic um, transformation in order to arrive at something else. And I think about syntax in a similar way, but um, I, I want to draw this distinction between language and sentences because sentences are often these like these containers of thought or these units of discourse where, where the words, the sound, the reverberations allow for an embodied and thus deeply subjective, purely faith-based. I mean, I, when I think about faith, I really do think like, I, I think that what poets do is, is, you know, short of like nothing short of magic, right? We conjure. And I, I think like that's really what the metaphor is doing. It's, it's making one thing into another and the power of transformation that happens so quickly. Uh, that bullet train, I think, is like a really fantastic way to experience the language. So, um, yeah, I feel bad for that Atlantic writer, too. I hope um, maybe we should send him these poems. I, I imagine um, perhaps he can find a way to love language again. Yeah, I, I hope, it, I mean, I, I was hoping reading it that some of the article was a little tongue-in-cheek to get that worked up over um, 
how terrible it is to use abbreviations or I mean they're just like very weird strange and I mean maybe it's just a career in writing and you just at some point you have to get all your pet peeves out there is kind of what it felt like (laughs) um but uh yeah it just felt very enclosing and I was excited to then get to move on and spend the rest of my day with with writing that was very opening um and uh, to the possibility. Well, I think that leads to my next question, um, which is, are there particular spots in the manuscript as you encountered it that you wouldn't want readers to overlook or miss? Would there be like specific spots? Um, and I'm asking for like your bright spots in particular. So one, every single poem, <laughs> um, that, that the work as a work, um, is important. And I've, I've always kind of tended towards the, the, the chapbook length, the book length in terms of what like the sort of engagement I want to have with someone's work that it's always been hard for me to just enter someone's work through one discrete poem unless I have like read a lot of their work. So that's just kind of how I've always been that it's like the experience of the whole is is a big part. Um, but in terms of kind of like specific moments um, that uh, the, the title uh, the title work, Every Dress is a Simile, um, I think is really important, especially in terms of, uh, of these uh, kind of discussion of figurative language and simile and metaphor there. And it's just this kind of in this lineage of um, poems that um, really push at the boundaries of what simile and metaphor can do. Um, I mean, just a couple at the top of my head is like Gertrude Stein's A Rose is a Rose is a Rose is a Rose. Uh, there's a, a William Carlos Williams poem that also, I think it's called The Rose or A Rose, where it starts as like a really like basic simile of a rose. And then the next thing you know, you're like in outer space or something. Um, <laughs> I need to go back and actually, I just have this vague memory of, of the poem. But that this is um, really just seeing like how far we can go uh kind of with that so that 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 poem i think really uh stands out um i was really just kind of it's hard to pick a couple but just to kind of pick another one um infinity is a clock and um was one that really jumped out um at me uh the first time i read it and then when i was rereading again um and i think Similar, and maybe we're just, we kind of keep coming, or I keep coming back to the same ideas of like this, like rocket ship, just like how far can you take me? And that this poem really seems to just kind of continue taking me somewhere. But at the same time, again, thinking through some of the questions I was asking, it's also like returning me to earth at kind of simultaneously. Um, and that to kind of get this whenever I see a word like infinity I like in a poem especially in the title in the first line the first word of the poem I really kind of imbued the entire poem with that and try to see every idea in there kind of through that lens of infinity um and I mean this is a a different kind of a poem that's doing a different thing, but it reminded me a lot of uh, Shrikanth Reddy's poem, Corruption, 
from his first book, which is one of my favorite poems, but it's, it, I mean, different content, different kind of function, but it, it resonated, it kind of hit some of the same chords inside of me in the sense that it's this kind of progression of ideas and that there's this infinite loop involved in it and that there's kind of this never endingness even as things are changing, um, growing and decaying. And um, yeah, so they kind of all of these things are wrapped up in this poem, but it's also infinite at the same time. I think about um, the ways poems resonate outward, right? Like I think of a, the only way I can kind of think about it in my own understanding is of bells. And I, I know that sounds almost like a cliche, but uh, hear bells that ring other bells that then ring outward. And it sounds silly to say I'm sending someone bells, but often that's that's in spirit of, of the poem itself is often what it feels like. Here's this ringing in my body and now it's leaving me through thought, through through like shivering or shaking or experiencing this poem. And now these bells are resonating outward. And so like this ripple is continuing. And I love this idea of um, a poem being able to kind of carry the infinite outward. Um, wow, that was, okay. I just, our conversation just, I might cry. I'm not gonna cry, don't worry. Um, I, I had a third question, but it feels kind of flat in comparison to the conversation that we've been having. So I sort of don't want to ask you, <laughs> but that's okay. I'm wondering if, yeah, uh, I think those are the two questions that I had for you, Andrew. Um, yeah. So I think that's, that's pretty much sort of what we had planned out. And I feel like we're sort of wrapping up a little early, um, but I, I hope that's okay with everyone. Um, V, thank you so much for your time. And, and it was such a pleasure to listen to you. Uh, I feel, I feel way more open to the world after having spent time with, you know, just really smart people who love language. Um, so thank you for making our day so much better. Um, and thank you for your time. No, you are both are so awesome in your, um, in the way that you uh, articulate um, your knowledge of reading, I think it's um, it's it's not only um, it's very thoughtful, but it seems like you had like an intuitive internal research within your in the way that you view the world and language. You made me realize how how sharp a reader you are, you know. And I really appreciate. I feel very lucky and fortunate to have you both as readers, you know. Um, and especially since you both love language so much, it also adds such a compelling component to my experience, you know, that um, and I, it makes me feel appreciated. That um, So I, I, I just want to express my appreciation for your um, intelligence and, and compassion based on the poem. We'll close out the podcast with another short reading from V. Key Now. Watermelon. I formulate a drought outside your spear of thirst. I formulate an army, an armed length of non-water course. You are flower and I am lemonade. You are clueless. I am an igloo. Slapped open, mindful of the centipede. You are my center my fata morgana, my vortex. So is the grapefruit, which I squeeze into a wine glass, 
made for your body, which has become an instrument of time, but not a device for desire. What is desire but a melon easily deceived by water? What is discourse but an, an intercourse on its way home from a war? The TOA Podcast is a production of The Offending Atom, a literary nonprofit publishing new writing alongside innovative editorial engagement that invites readers into the context, history, and processes of literary creation. Each month, theoffendingatom.com launches new digital chapbooks, plus podcasts and newsletters that take you deeper into the poetic weeds. Listeners can join the TOA community at www.theoffendingatom.com to support the artists TOA publishes. Join us next time when we'll be speaking to Jessica Q. Stark about her chapbook, In a Net. Today's podcast was hosted by me, Avni Vyas, and edited by Nick DeDominic. Music by Palberta. Our other editors are Andrew Wessels, Ryan Wynette, and Whitney Holmes.